is Life of Jam. We're live. It's the Life of Jam live video podcast season two, episode 14. Um, I call this episode Writing with Strength, and that's because we has, have Yasmin Ramirez here. She's the author of the epic memoir, Andale Preta. I think I said that right. It's such an awesome memoir. I mean, it's just beautiful. It's beautifully wrought, written, so many intersections with her. And I'm so excited to interview her about her beautiful book. Let me read her bio and then she's going to read for you. Listen to this bio. Yasmin Ramirez is a Mexican-American writer from El Paso, Texas, whose debut memoir was just released on April 19, 2022 from Cinco Puntos Press which is now an imprint of Lee and Lowe Books. Her debut memoir, Andale Prieta, delicately shows us, and very delicately and beautifully, shows us the experience of a young Latina woman growing up on the U.S.-Mexico border and her subsequent years searching for herself and fulfillment after the death of her grandmother, Ita. She is an assistant professor of English and creative writing and Chicana X literature at El Paso Community College, Find everything about her at www.yasminramirez.com, and her link is in the bio. So, welcome. Thank you so much for having me for that <laughs> super warm welcome. Um, I love it. I'm so excited to, to spend this time with you. Great. Well, I'm going to put the camera on you if you want to read a portion, five, ten minutes, however long you want, and that way I can go share it on my page and everything. We can get everyone here, but um, we're also on Twitter Live. So please read your section and I'm going to put the camera on you. Okay. Awesome. Um, so I was trying to decide what I would read. Um, and I'm really enjoyed reading this piece, which is kind of funny because it's the afterword of the book. Um, but it doesn't have a ton of spoilers, but I think this really encompasses kind of what I was trying to do. Um, as I was going along and, and writing it. So I'm gonna read this section for you. It does have a lot of names. I'm gonna warn you, you don't have to know them all, um, but I'm just sort of taking you through my family's um, genealogy. My great-great-grandfather Francisco Acosta was born in Saucillo, Chihuahua, Mexico in 1882. In 1888, he emigrated with his family to El Paso, Texas. He was still a child and they were searching for opportunity on the other side. He grew up in what was a small, dusty town of around 10,000 people at that time. It was here he met Maria Sosa. She was from Juarez, Mexico, just across the Rio Grande River. At that time, there were no walls. The first bridge had just been built a few years before. A simple flatboat ferry could be taken from one side of the river to the other. El Paso's landscape changed with the arrival of the railroad, and Francisco, a laborer, took advantage of the boom. At that time, Asarco Railroad and Mining was the one, it was one of the first transnational corporations. Its success depended on the relationships between the sister cities. This drew people looking for work. Between 1890 and 1910, the city's population more than tripled from 10,000 to almost 40,000 people. The desert towns started to see more movement and travelers. This bustle somehow brought Francisco and Maria together, and in 1904, they welcomed the first of six children, my great-grandfather, Alfredo Acosta. My great-grandfather, Alfredo, owned a filling station on Piedras and would later become Grant Avenue. We don't know what happened in the filling station because after a while, he worked as a taxi driver. I only met him once near the time of his death. I was three years old but his thick silver hair and light, almost yellow-brown eyes were burned in my memory. Ipa, my grandmother, sat next to him on his bed in a small room of the home he made with his second wife. I hovered in the doorway, watching how his face lit up when he saw her. Ipa glowed even though she knew the end was coming. She was always his favorite, his manokucha, a term of endearment he came up with because she was a lefty. My great-great-grandmother, Manuela, was born in Texas. At a very young age, she married Pedro Davila and gave birth to my great-grandmother, Guadalupe Davila, in 1908. I don't know anything about Pedro Davila. What I do know is Manuela left Guadalupe with her parents when Guadalupe was a child. They lived somewhere in Mexico. 
She remarried a man named Pascual Ortiz and always seemed to be on the move. Guadalupe was a quiet, solitary childhood with her grandparents. Manuela sent dolls as gifts for her daughter from her travels with Pascual, but instead of being able to play with them, they were hung on her bedroom wall. Dolls were to be admired, not played with. Guadalupe was a child in an adult's world, and Manuela was having too much fun to stop and be the mother she needed. On January 31st, 1928, Guadalupe married Alfredo Acosta. She was 19 years old. They had four children of their own. Alicia Acosta Maita was the second youngest. Guadalupe was a homemaker and loved all her children. But there must have been flashes of her own mother, Manuela, and Ita, because as a child, she was sent away to live with her madrina, her godmother, in California. Ita became the lone girl in a family of four boys, so she adapted. She borrowed a pair of jeans when girls only wore dresses, looped a rope through the belt loops, and learned to box, play marbles, and overall roughhouse. She became one of the boys and stayed with her madrina several years. When she came back to El Paso, to Segundo Barrio, she felt out of place. She spoke more English now, while everyone spoke Spanish. Her two older sisters were strangers. She was put back in dresses. One of her comforts was her younger brother since they could play together. Her father seemed to be the only one with a face full of smiles for her. When he wasn't working, he played guitar while she sang. Still, Ita didn't fit, and no matter what she did, her mother's face remained unsmiling. Ita worked as an elevator operator at the once beautiful downtown Caples building. She met a man named Manuel Lopez there. As she pushed buttons for people, he smiled and said, you're going to be my wife. Ita scoffed, I don't even know you. Ita married him when she was 20. They moved to Los Angeles. Ita was tired of unsmiling faces. Mama Lupe didn't approve of Manuel or of the marriage and called Ita a whore when she become, became pregnant with Leticia, my mom. Even in another state, Ita couldn't shake Mama Lupe's disapproval. Ita did the best she could when she discovered Manuel was not her knight in shining armor. Knights don't beat women. She did the best for most of her life, even when it wasn't always the best. Leticia, my mom, worked as a mechanic at Southwestern Bell and had a nine-year-old daughter, Angie, when she met my dad, Jesus. She was 26. They met in a bar, The Hideaway, where Ita worked at the time. He made a living as a carpenter, making countertops and cabinets with his brother. He was divorced and had three children of his own, a girl around Angie's age and two boys. So Angie didn't scare him away. Ita glared at him a stout barrel of a man with an arched brow and thin lips. Mom married him September, 1979. By 1981, they were separated. Mom said they got along fine as long as they didn't live together. That's just what they did. On weekends, we were a family, but when my mom got laid off from the phone company and left for customs training in Georgia, she left us with Etha, not my dad. In 1989, mom made it official and filed for divorce from a marriage that had never really been a marriage. So where am I from? I am from Francisco and Maria, Manuela and Pedro, Guadalupe and Alfredo, Alicia and Manuel, Leticia and Jesus. A long, time, a long line of people who pursued a better life. And I live in the largest and oldest border town in the United States, El Paso and Chuco to locals. Its land once belonged to Mexico, but even when it's changed owners, its roots, las raíces, remain Mexican. My skin is still brown because the land is still brown. And even the gringo transplants move here, professors at UTEP, portless military, or customs agents start to turn a little brown too. La cultura is a marriage of two things, Mexican and American, Spanish and English, Tacos al pastor and Texas by steaks. My family is all these things. And this is our story. Wow. It's Thank so you. interesting that you read that part because when I got to the end of the book, towards the end of the book, before the recipes, and I saw the afterward, it just, it put everything together. 
It was like, that's where you were heading to showing this family history, this tree, this place. Uh, why did you decide to put that at the end and not at the beginning? Um, I think because, you know, there's so much that happens earlier on. Well, in the first part, you know, it's focused on my grandmother. So it's like finding Ethop. And so I really wanted to just shine that light on her. And then the second part is me. But in between all of that, there's like hints of our, our background and our family. And so I felt like that at the end kind of, even though I tried not to do, it still did it perfectly. I think it puts like a bow around everything and it ties all the stories together. Where I think if it had come first, some of it would have like ruined the hints of what's happening in the story. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I really loved where you put it. And it kind of tied everything together, like you said. Um, let's talk about all the nostalgia. All the, I love how you reference music in this book. I know how hard it is to use song lyrics. I couldn't use them in my book myself because of uh, cost. But what you do this really interesting thing where, you're, where you'll put in parentheses, look up this song and listen to it while you read. Was that something you knew you wanted to do from the beginning? I loved it. Not for the beginning, honestly. I, um, as I was writing, I made my own playlist mm. to kind of put me in these these places. Yeah. And some of the places where I recommend, like the song is just so vital. Because um, mm -hmm. some, like some of the lyrics, I had to either like taper it down or I had to just, I couldn't use all of them either. Right. And so I was thinking like, what can I do? What can I do? Um, and I, I really have enjoyed when there are certain parts in books that like break the fourth wall and talk to the mm -hmm. reader. And so I thought, well, this would be a beautiful spot um, for them to listen to the song as they're reading. And um, that was one way I kind of like got around that, the use yeah. of the song. Um, and yeah, I mean, music was so important to me writing this that I wanted to include you, the reader in that as well. Yeah. And I loved it. Cause you know, I write a lot about music and, um, I think I might use that in an essay one day, like use that, um, I guess I'd call it a technique or the way it, it was really inventive and creative. And like you said, you broke that wall, and especially with kids nowadays, they're so into our music and this music that we grew up listening to that it's interesting. Um, I think it would draw them in even more that musical side. Yeah. And I think in, in some weird way, it, I mean, not in a weird way, in a very fun way, it makes it engaging, right? Like yeah. it's, like you're marrying this media if, if they do it right. And so yeah. that's, that's just really beautiful. Also. Um, so yeah, it's great. I mean, I made a Spotify playlist for my punk rock public defender book and I keep on forgetting to share it with people. And because, but it is to me, it was such an organic way of bringing the story is in the music and the bands you're talking about too. Right. It's all mm -hmm. culture. I mean, it, it all is right. It's, the blend of it. Um, let's talk about the opening. I think it's uh, chapter three. The first chapter begins when you're working at Nordstrom's. Um, but the third chapter is in the bar. Um, you know, my dad owned a bar. I grew up hanging out in bars. Talk about that. One of those opening scenes in the bar. What made you want to include that? Was it you had to because that was such a part of Ethan, your grandmother? Yeah, absolutely. I had to, had to, had to. Um, I think as someone, right, you, I, and I think you'll understand this, as someone who grew up in bars, mm -hmm. that it that for everyone else who didn't do it, it sounds weird. But, I mean, it was the 80s. Nobody cared yeah. for me, right? Like, oh, there's a kid in a bar. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, of course, it's completely different. <laughs> but um, there's something cool about being this child in an adult world, and all these adults are kind of babying you. And like buying you snacks and giving you quarters to put music. And, um, you know, I, I spent so much time in bars with my grandma. Just, you know, she was a bartender. So I think once you're in that service industry, even after she was not working there, because I didn't know her when she was working in a bar, she's already retired. But like that mm -hmm. was, those were her friends. Those were her people. Yeah. So when you want to see your friends, you go to the bar. <laughs> and so, um, it's it, for me, it was magical. I loved it. I yeah. never thought it was odd or weird. Um, I did know it's a child that I couldn't <laughs> tell people I was at the bar last night. Like I innately, I just kind of knew that, but I had the best time there. I never felt unsafe. I never felt um, neglected. Right. If anything, I felt more doted on than, than if we were at home. 
Um, so I loved it. I don't know. How was it for you? Did you have the same experience? Well, the bars were usually, my dad owned a bar, so we would go when it was closed, but you know, we'd sell cigarettes. We'd plug the jukebox, we dance. And what's really interesting is there's a couple of books recently, Tender Bars, one of them that did a really good job. It was made into a movie with Ben Affleck of showing this young guy growing up in a bar in Boston. And then, um, what was I going to say? Oh, but what's really interesting is I recently made the connection to how I loved going out to bars and dancing and that it was probably because it was nostalgic for me from when I was little dancing at my dad's bar with my two sisters. <laughs> and I would go out to clubs and bars with my two best friends. So it was, it was weird when I made that connection. Yes, I made that connection also. Well, I'm not going <laughs> to say I did it. My, my therapist did it for me. <laughs> and really? she was kind of like, yeah, because I was like, uh -huh. so when this happened, because uh, we were talking actually about my grandmother's death. And I was like, yeah, I would just. I, I, I didn't know what to do. So I went to the bar and I just, at, at that point I was like, I was drinking. Um, I mean, I was trying to drink my sorrows away. Right. Which never works. Um, but then my parents, it works like, till it doesn't. Course, right. Yeah. <laughs> until it makes you more sour, like it's mm -hmm. horrible. But my therapist pointed out like, Hey, well, where did you go as a kid? And I was like, to the, yeah. <gasps> and I had this like, Oh my goodness. <laughs> like I was in some way, shape or form trying to just be closer to my grandmother. Um, that makes that complete time. sense. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 When my dad was diagnosed with cancer, I remember I went out one night to this really dive bar in San Bernardino, you know, just got shit -based. come into the hospital room the next morning. It's kind of like in your book, how your sister is young at you like, Oh, you had to, you know, and I just remember just being so like ashamed. But then I was like, Oh, my dad would have approved. You know, at that point he was almost, he was really sick. And, but I was like, ah, daddy would have like, he was like, you know, he was a bar fly. Yeah. My dad was a bar fly. Um, so I just, I just love how many intersections this book is really at least most of it. The first half for sure is a love letter to your grandmother in some ways to your mother as well. Um, I so identified with all that pain and guilt you had for leaving, um, Talk about how this book was really an act of reconciliation and remembering and bringing Ita back to life figuratively on the page, right? I mean, yeah. it's such a beautiful thing to write her story. I mean, she must be looking down so proud. It, it makes me want to cry because I could just, I hear my dad's voice more than anyone. And it's because he's probably passed. Um I mean, did you hear her voice in your ear while you were writing it kind of thing? Or were you just more trying to transmit these memories from when you were young? Um, you know, when I when I first started it, it was a, as a way for me to to hang on to her. Right. Because then now that she was like physically gone from me, I was like, I have to hang on to these memories. I don't want to lose them. I don't want to lose them. Um, and I don't I don't know if I heard her voice, but I mean, you're bringing up something interesting in that. Uh, my family, they read it. I've read it. And as soon as I start hearing her talk, like her dialogue, like that's her. Like I nailed that. I'm so proud of it because yeah. that's exactly the way my grandma spoke, the cadence, kind of the roughness sometimes. Mm. Um, so maybe she was sort of guiding me along the way, like making sure that I was I was speaking the way she would speak, especially because it was really important to me um, that I I write her in Spanish because that, that was our relationship, right? She would speak to me in Spanish and I would answer her in English because we both understood, but that was just where we were in our, in our level of, of communication. And so um, it was really important that I, I honored that and I keep her voice, her voice, right? It wouldn't have been her voice if it was written in English. Um, and I love that about it. I thought you did it beautifully. And, um, you know, it's really hard to do it without doing these translations in the middle, which can be clunky. But I mean, I don't think you needed that with it. It was completely people could get the context, whether or not they spoke Spanish, but you didn't you didn't try to make it easy for people either. But it was just beautifully done. And I I heard her like and I saw her too. these images you have of her uh, putting cream on her face, watching General Hospital and Wheel of Fortune, all these like little touchstones that some people might call pop culture, but I just call like culture, right? It's, it doesn't, you know, uh, we all watch Brady Bunch. We all watch these things. They're American kind of like touchdowns, regardless of race, regardless of culture, regardless of economic privilege, right? Absolutely. 
Um, I think there's there's those moments of shared experience, right? Like you said, I love the break. Like as soon as you said Brady Bunch, I already saw like the intro <laughs> with the pictures, you know? Um, I Those are all things that regardless of where you grew up in the United States at that point, you, you experience them. And so, well, the book is really cultural. There's a lot of things in there that are universal, like the Wheel of Fortune, like, um, you know, uh, General Hospital, or um, even, you know, to go broader, like her loss, like we will all experience a loss in our life. And so um, I didn't think about that when I was putting it together, but I was like, yeah, this, because this is how I grew up and this is what I did. And this is what I was trying to hang on to. Um, and so, yeah, I think inadvertently she's guided me along the way. She's definitely given me some hints. Um, she was there- such, I mean, her history, the amount of times she was married, um, just her life history was just so interesting. How did you recreate that? Did you just interview people in your family and just go little by little or did you know it? Cause I always wonder, you know, um, writing, writing your young adult, it's kind of, or your younger years. The question is whether you go with what you knew then or what you knew now. Um, in mine, I went with what I knew then. And then in some of the afterward, I kind of explain what I know now as an adult. How hard was that to kind of, uh, you know, walk that tightrope between memory, adult voice, young adult voice? Um, you know, I, I think, you know, there's parts of it where even though this is my memoir, you can tell, like, I let the reader know this is how I I mm-hmm. think everything went down. Um, it was a lot of interviewing. I knew some of it, but like, yeah. I would know tidbits and then I would need like my sister or my mom to kind of put, help me put the puzzle together. Um, and then I find it interesting, like things that people remember, right? Like interviewing my mom, um, some of the details that she would give me. Cause you know, we, of course we all remember everything differently, but when she was telling me about, you know, when she was a child way before, you know, she even thought I would exist and her experience with my ETA, um, I, I wanted to to sort of show this pattern of of our family, right? Because when you really look at it, it's like I have a very um, female driven family. Oh yeah, and, matriarchs, um, yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, there's this drive that my Etha had that I think my mom has, and my mom has passed mm-hmm. down to, to both my sister and I. And so um, I wanted to show that as best as I could. Um, and while still letting the reader know, like, hey, I wasn't alive here, but this is what I know. Well, yeah, and your mom is so interesting, and she's such a strong character. She's working in a male-dominated field in customs and also working a second job at times, and uh, I could identify with that. You know, my mom was a waitress, but she also worked at Circle K, and she worked so hard for us, which I never really appreciated till now, you know, till I'm an adult. And um, now we understand. Now we understand how hard that is, right? especially, you know, the older they get. And so um, I have a question from Cindy Messenger. She wrote a book about a mouse at the Mission Inn. She's a fabulous writer. Um, and she wants to know how long it took you to finish your book. And um, I that was my next question, Cindy. I said, I can identify with your quest. Like, in some ways, this book is about writing itself um, and about the journey of that. How long, when did you decide to write it after Etha died? Um, how did you hone your memories and how long did the book take from beginning to end? So um, when I first started writing the memories, I had no, uh, I had no inkling that it was going to be a book. Like it was just for me. I, I still have the file. It's this hodgepodge of things that I was just putting together. Because um, before, before this, I was a fiction writer. I would just write oh. fiction and I would only write short story. Really? Yeah. You're such a master. <laughs> masterful memoir writer I don't know who heard um your afterwards you reading it but I mean that's like the definition of memoir how you lay out your family history so sorry to interrupt go ahead no no it's okay um and so you know uh I actually started uh, an MFA program here I moved back to El Paso and I started a bilingual MFA program and I was just struggling that first semester because I you know, I'd had, I'd been out of school for a while. I was self-taught writer. I just read a whole lot. And I was in suddenly in this room in this very academic setting with people who had, you know, had their undergrad in English and creative writing. And here I am, I had an undergrad degree in psychology, which was completely different from everybody else. So I was really, really struggling. And, um, I, 
I didn't, I had like a writer's block because my, my, my first workshops where we're talking about my stuff, I just got ripped apart. And as a young baby writer, you're kind of like, Oh my God, you just freak out. And I freaked out. And so then I ended up taking a chunk of that big hodgepodge story about my grandma. And I'm like, I'm just going to use this. Cause I, I didn't write anything. I was not prepared for today. And that was the first workshop that suddenly everybody was like, this is amazing. And I, I, I was, it's the section where, where my grandma was taking off her makeup with the men's underwear. And I thought it was like, they're, they're all fascinated by how I described the chones. And I was like, <laughs> I, I really, I had this mo out of body experience. Like, do they know what chones are? Like, I was just, because <laughs> um, <laughs> I was like, is this really that fascinating? But um, I'm so lucky to have worked with a wonderful um, writer and he was my mentor and my thesis director, Lex Williford. And so he was like, because then I was like, hey, I think this is, I have something here. And he's like, you do have something here. He's like, do you want to write it though? It's not going to be easy. And I was like, I think I can do it. And he's like, it's not going to be easy. And I'm like, I could do it. I could do it. Um, so it was my thesis. Um, but then I, I waited for a little bit. I, I had to work. Um, I started teaching and then I was hired as a tenure track professor and the 10 tenure process is like really um, rigorous. So I would just write in pockets. And I think if I cut out all the breaks, it took me like five years to write this, but it took so much longer. Sorry, that's the dog. It's okay. <laughs> I figured. Mm. Um, but it took so how many years? Out. I'm sorry. I missed that. Seven. If, if I, I think if I cut everything out five years, but if I, if I eight years, I think the whole time. Wow. Yeah. With the breaks and the stops and everything and revisions. Well, you know, mine took 15 and I really do think there's a benefit to putting the time and giving it some space to breathe. Memoir is not like fiction at all. I mean, these are true stories and sometimes our perception of the memories can change or how like with characters, like we can kind of, like grow in how we think about them. So, I mean, I know it took a while, but I think it's uh, so beautifully done. Um, I'm actually surprised it only took seven years because it's so deep and uh, thoughtful. And, you know, I don't know how old you are, but, you know, I'm, I'm 50. And I think that if I had written my memoir much younger, it might not have benefited from who I am, my maturity now, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm not that much younger than no. you. Um, but I think to, I, I, I would just really kind of jump in the deep end of the pool mm -hmm. when I was doing this. Yeah. Um, so when I was in the deep end, sometimes even I, I would come out for air, but even in like my real life out of those memories, I had just like whatever I was going through, it was on me. Yeah. Um, so I think that's where. I did something right and I, I did it well and that I was just like, okay, if I'm doing this, I'm going all in. Um, and my mom makes this joke. She says, yes, me never half ass anything. So, <laughs> <laughs> so she's like good or bad. She doesn't half ass it. So I think when I was writing this, that I was like, this hurts. I'm like, Oh, I have to keep going. And yep. so I just like leaned into the hurt. It's like, you know, I can't just smoke one cigarette, unfortunately. I'll smoke the whole pack. It's that kind you know, because I what I loved is, like, you're clearly very honest about who you are when you're struggling. Not all writers can do that. Not everyone feels comfortable, and that's okay. You don't have to tell everything about yourself. But I really loved how um, open and honest you were. There's a story in your book where your mom is kind of pummeling you after she kind of catches you with a boy or whatever. Did you think, because, you know, I've always struggled with that. Like, what parts do I put in about my mom? I don't want her ever to be seen as a stereotype, like the angry Mexican mother. It's something we all have to deal with as Latinas, like these stereotypes that are out there. How, but clearly your mom's not a stereotype. She has all these layers to her. So how long did it take you to get there with your mother? Because it sounds like Ita, you know, she's gone. So it might be a little bit easier. Was it hard to write about your mother? I think... You know, when I was writing, this is going to sound really selfish, but I didn't think about them at all. Smart. 
um, I was just trying to, to follow the story. Like, I'm like, I have to do this story justice. I have to follow it. And with myself included, right. I'm not always in the best light. I'm not, I'm not perfect. I make a lot of mistakes. Um, and that those parts too, I'm like, okay, I, if I wrote, you know, about my mom, you know, beating the crap out of me that day, I have to write about my own mistakes and my own things that I did. And so I was like, the only thing that, um, it's going to do the story justice is if I write it the way I remember it, the way it was true to me and whether that makes us good or bad. Um, now, after I was done, I was a little like, Ooh, my mom's going to read this, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, it, but it was like, after I was done, but she was so wonderful. I told her, Hey, just remember, this is the way I remember things. This is the way I experience exactly. things. Um, and so she, she was really wonderful in that she, she didn't give me any kind of feedback. She just said, I loved it. Um, And, you know, that's a that's a good mom answer. Um, Even to this day, when I share stuff with her, I know she gets kind of stuck. She'll be like, that's awesome. That's that's what she'll say. But, uh, you know, I'm looking for that scene. There's that scene where um, you have this, you know, kind of sad situation with your father and then you're driving away and the clouds are like there's tears running down your face and you have this beautiful line where you talk about the clouds in the sky, like going from gold to gray to gold. And I just, I think it was such a beautiful way to show the relationship of you and your mother, you know, because um, most of the time um, she's this very strong character, but occasionally you'll see this tender side of her, which was Mm -hmm. nice. Yeah. And I I mean, my mom didn't hug me till I was 36 when my dad died. So, I mean, I know, you know, these strong mothers that, the other side of it is sometimes we maybe didn't get the nurturing and maybe that's where Etha came in and that's where my dad came in. My dad was a lovable, very affectionate, sweet man, but a drunk. Right. So, I mean, um, was that, did you try to find a balance between that to show your mom's tender side too? Um, you know, I think because of all the jobs that my mom had, yeah. she was wow. tender in her own way with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my grandma was super affectionate with me all the time, Aww. hugging and playing. And um, even to the point that I would be like, ah, get away from me. Um, <laughs> and my mom was affectionate in her own way. Um, but, you know, she she had to, you, you said it earlier, she was a woman in a man's world for a yeah. big part of her life. And so I think um, sometimes it's hard to like let that go when you come home. Um she had a, a physical uniform that she would take off daily, but she also had this invisible armor that she put oh. around herself to be safe. And so I, even though my mom was hard, I never felt unloved. I didn't feel, yeah. um, especially during my angsty years, I didn't want anyone to hug me. I don't want anyone near me, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I think, you know, when it came down to it, I knew my mom always had my back. Mm. Right. And so yeah. in that moment, you know, she, she showed, she showed me how much she cared, like the way she knew how and like taking me somewhere and taking me away from this space where I'm, you know, I wasn't very happy being stood up. Um, right. So that's interesting that you call it armor. You know, I'm a public defender. And when I used to do these really serious felony trials before I came to mental health, um, you do have to put on a masculine persona in some ways. My husband says, I pee standing up. Um, I'm very um, masculine in my energy sometimes because I've had to be. And it is hard to take that off. It is hard to um, let go of the armor and be authentic to who you are if you're working in these um, chaotic, extreme environments, right? So, I, you know, that's really interesting that the literal uniform and the figurative uniform. Um, let's talk about place, right? Because place is such a part of this book. Mm-hmm. I mean... I, my favorite thing to write about is place and to read writings about place where place is a character in this book. El Paso is a character, but it's a character that morphs, right? Because it's El Paso when you're younger and you come home. Talk to um, the people listening about what, how much home plays a role. I mean, I think at one point you even say, I marked it. So give me one second. I put home on this post-it so I could find it because I knew I was going to ask this. You even say on page um, 221, you talk about home, you know, you say, um, can I come home? 
can I quit and just go home on page 220? And it's right before you're going into your MFA program. So in a way, this book is somewhat of a traditional, like almost fictional narrative where we see the uh, young narrator finding their life path. And it may, for me, it was much older. You may be a little older than your typical narrator doing this quest, but it's beautiful. And so talk about home and coming home and finding home and writing uh, that about, about that as a theme. I think, you know, um, there's something that there's a saying, right? You have to leave home to know what at home is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, as a kid, I was like, I want to get out of here. I'm not coming back. I'm going to do this. <laughs> um, forget this place, right? <laughs> um, yeah. I'm going to blow so, this, you know, taco stand. You know? Exactly. I used exactly. to call it uh, unterrible. I'm out of unterrible, you know? <laughs> That's great. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, I don't think I appreciated my home until I did not live here. And I yeah. lived in um, the Dallas Metroplex in a very, very uh, white space. I lived in uh, Houston. I know what you mean. Yeah. Very white. Dallas is the worst. That's like old white money. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then I, I, I worked in the areas where there was the old white money. Um, so it was hard for me. And so after my grandma passed away, I really had this moment where I'm like, what am I doing here? I was just kind of looking around and I, this didn't fit. And, um, I just knew that what I was doing there was not working and it, I didn't yeah. feel right anymore. And I was not happy. Um, and when I came home, I don't know if I was necessarily happy either, but I did feel like this giant, <sighs> Like I could mm. finally just be me and not have to explain myself on a daily oh. basis to people. Um, and I was, I mean, I was, I was scared shitless when I came home. Yeah. I was like, if this doesn't work, what happens? And then I'm like, wait, I can, you know, go to grad school. And then if I want to move, I can move again. Like people do that all the time. And so there's um, that scene where you walk into either a mechanic or a restaurant and you spell your name out. Cause you're so used to having to explain yourself and spell your name out for people. Yes. Um, that moment stood with me so long because I, maybe I imagined it, but I swear everyone waiting for their car was even like <laughs> looking at me. Like, what is she doing? Uh, I was just so, so used to it. And so used to um, anglicizing certain things, right? Like tacos al pastor versus just saying al pastor, like mm-hmm. little things I got so used to doing you know, because I, I lived there for a decade. That's a long time, long time. Um, for me to be in this space um, that I, I really didn't have any um, any Latino friends. I had one one friend who was Peruvian later on, but that was a different kind of brown, right? We didn't always. Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, so coming home, to me, I really saw it through different eyes, um, especially starting the MFA program. You know, they would let in five English speakers and five Spanish speakers. But the Spanish speakers came from all over the place, like Colombia, Venezuela, El Salvador. And so um, it helped me to play tour guide to them and be like, let me show you my city. Because then I was also rediscovering my city because I hadn't lived here for so long that there was a couple of times that I'm like, let me take you. Oh, it's not there anymore. (laughs) You know, things like that. But I saw my city the way they saw it. And I kind of became a tourist for a second. And then I just had this immense nostalgia of the places I would go with my grandmother in downtown mm. El Paso, go to the bars um, that were still there. Um, and I'm like, this, this place is who I am for sure. Because growing up here is, a, is an immense privilege as a young brown girl, because mm. I did not feel my color or my, my voice or my lack of Spanish or that much like, little maybe tiny pockets but I never felt othered until I left and so that is a big big awakening as like a 19 20 year old to never have experienced that their entire life and then have it like full force bible belt of Dallas Texas (laughs) yeah and you came home and you stayed is what's interesting as did I the day my dad died, I literally told my husband, finish up dental school. I'm moving back home. I moved back in with my twin sister in effing Colton, slept on her couch. We would get into fights every day, but I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to stay. I just felt so drawn, you know, and James Joyce, he may have left Dublin, 
but he was always writing about Dublin. So I think even if you don't come home, you're, you're going to end up writing about home because what does RuPaul say? Like, take what you're, you're most ashamed of and use that as your superpower. So for me, it was like growing up blue collar, being a high school dropout, being from Ontario and uh, having this very blue collar background, mixed race background, and then using that, right? That is who I am. I could deny it and pretend to be a corporate lawyer and drive a Mercedes and have a, you know, you had all these Gucci things and all these high end stuff, but it never made me happy. Any of that high end stuff, really. I drive a Prius now and I buy, I might have one nice bag and the rest of the stuff I buy at Target. I mean, it's kind of like what matters in life. I think right? that you, you hit the nail on the head there. It is what matters in life. Um, but- it was, again, it was such a rude awakening that I knew my family is really important. Um, mm. Being there is being, is really important. Um, so when I moved home and I, I mean, I got lucky too, where this is where I think some, my grandma was just guiding me. Cause as soon as I decided mm. I was going to move home, everything fell into place for me. Like <laughs> really, really, like yeah. I've been fighting it for so long. Um, I met my husband here who was funny cause he's not from here. But, um, and both of us like being here and my family's here and it's nice because they're not intrusive. Like we, they're there, but we don't even see them like that often. He's like, I have the best suegros ever because, you know, and that, and that way we're not like a stereotypical Latino family that they're just like popping into our house all the my time. My suegra lives with me. She's 89. Yeah, okay. But that's Argentine culture. She ain't going nowhere. <laughs> I would say she's, uh, they hold hands, my husband and his wife. My husband and um, his mom, I just called it, that's creepy. I just called him his wife. And, uh, you know, I would say she's going to live to be 120 just to spite me. I love her, though. I love her. I love her. She's, you know, 89. And you know, she's lived with us since her husband died for about, what, 10 years now. But there's a benefit to it, you know? I think there is. You know? I think there's a, there's a beauty to it, too, mm-hmm. right? Like, I could never imagine putting, like, my mom in um, a facility. Like, unless it was something medical that I could not do. Yeah. Um, that, that's what family is for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, my mom is it's going to be 70 soon. Mm-hmm. So the idea of leaving is just, like, like I, can't, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. I have to be here because I don't have her, um, you know, for an extended forever period of time. And so that's something like my Ifa taught me even after. Yeah. And, you know, coming home and teaching, right, in your hometown at the community college level as a professor, what's that like? How did, are you like a rock star to these students? These students must just so look up to you. They must want to be you. Like, not only just as a writer, but as a person, you know, I've seen a lot of your posts and you're just real, you're not, you know, there's no elitism here. I'm sure you reach these kids at their core, right? And they must just love you. What's that like teaching at that level? Um, well, I hope they love me. I try. <laughs> I try. <laughs> um, maybe they're cursing my name when they're doing homework, but um <laughs> they're like, Andale. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I think it's really beautiful um teaching because you know, we're the here we're very much a commuter city. Because we mm-hmm. have so many students that cross the bridge daily from Juarez oh. to come to college. Here. I didn't know that. And yeah. We have a, a lot, like a, a large chunk of my students are international students. Wow. And so they cross the bridge daily and they come to class and they do their homework and then they have to go back and they sit in this big long line. Right. And so, I mean, that's some hustle. I don't, I don't think when I was that age, I didn't have that hustle. Not and so yeah, I, I try I to didn't. honor them. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's hard. Um, I'd be like, Oh, there's a bar right there. I'm going to go have a drink <laughs> and then go. My, my roommate, the only thing I've ever known, I've never, I've been to Houston. I lived in Houston for three years. I've been to San Antonio and everywhere else throughout Texas. The one city I've never been to is El Paso, which my, Roommate in law school, Bridget Beaches, who is now a law, law judge for administrative law judge in L.A. She grew up in El Paso and she you remind me so just your your frame of reference and just your personality just reminds me so much of her. It's like I've already known you. 
I don't know <laughs> if it's cool. the El Paso thing or just like the Latina thing, but yeah, that's cool, man. I didn't you know need to that- both. Yeah. So kids cross the border, take classes there, and then go back over after class. Interesting. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. They do it. And, you know, um, during peak times, it was really hard for them because they'd be in oh. line like 5 a.m. And then their class was like at 8. Um, so it, it's, I mean, it's, they're so dedicated that I'm trying to honor them and try to show them some things and trying yeah. to um, convey like my love for literature. Um, like I try to pick works that are relevant to them for sure. Yeah. Um, and trying to give them some more modern works that they can connect with. And I try to make assignments um, fun. And really, I just want them to be as successful as possible. And I'll, I'm very candid with them. I, I admit that my first attempt at college went horribly. And um, I admit I'm not the expert at everything. Um, and so I think that kind of helps. And I don't have, like, I'm what you see is what you get. I don't have different versions of myself. And so... Um, I just try to be real with them and, and try to be honest and try to support them. And I think that's important. Yeah. I mean, you really, it really is a service industry, you know, teaching because like you're supporting these students that need you so desperately to get to the university level, you know, because I always say my five years at Mount Sac was the hardest part of my academic career. Once I got to UC Riverside and I didn't have to work full time, it was easy for me. I actually didn't find law school hard. I enjoyed it. I didn't have to work. Um, I mean, I was broke, but I didn't have to, they wouldn't let us work first year. Then I made money second year and didn't have to work at a firm. And so I think that for me, I understand how hard it is um, to get through these general ed classes at the community college level. It is not easy, especially if you're working full time and, you know, all these issues, most of them are first gen probably. And it's just so hard and there's really no support other than the professors, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, there's more other, support now, maybe. Yeah. But I think a lot of times students aren't aware, right? Yeah. Like we, we know their support, like hindsight, but they'll come mm-hmm. in and they're like, you know, freshly graduated and they're just like, I'm coming to college. What do I do now? You know, I have them. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, I had someone say really, I, he's not a little boy. He's a young man, but in my kid, in my mind, they're always a like little boy, yeah. little girl. Yeah. yeah. And so he was like, so what are, what are we going to do next semester? We're not using this book. And I was like, I'm not going to be your teacher next Aww. semester. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry, miss. I'm stuck in high school. And he got kind of like ashamed, like he got embarrassed. And I was like, it's okay. But you know, no, you're not going to have me again. I mean, unless you want to, and he yeah. started laughing. And so, you know, there's just these, these beautiful, like innocent questions that we get that they just don't know. And I have to remind them, like, take advantage of all this stuff. This is what your tuition is paying for. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was just listening to NPR. It was a rerun of a story where they um, talked to these students that were in this like uh, race for prep school and then didn't get in and then ended up going to these uh, pretty prestigious colleges, but then dropped out. And one of the kids didn't know he could get the books at the library and he didn't have money for books. It's stuff like that. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And I just I think I got really lucky that I had some really good community college professors that took me under their wing. And um, I don't think I would have made it otherwise, you know, I didn't have a car. That was the biggest part of my 20s was never. It's probably why I never got a DUI, but I also had to take the bus and walk everywhere and beg for rides. So let's talk about the role that um, skin color, which is actually in the title um, and color privilege and language plays in your book. Your older sister, Angie, is half white. Her dad was white, right? Lighter skinned. and then the title uh, is a term of endearment, even though it does talk about the color issue. Do you want to talk about that? Like that's, I just, I just love that about it because it is not, no pun intended, black and white here, right? It's, it's very complicated. Yeah. Um, you know, so the title first, it came, my grandma says this like three different times in the book. Um, and so when, when we were coming, cause this was not the original title, um, oh. when I was working with Lee Bird from Cinco Puntos Press, she's the one that pointed out like, Hey, did you notice this phrase comes up like three different times, like three important times. And I was like, Oh yeah. Okay. And she's like, what do you think about titling that? And I was like, okay. And at first I wasn't sure. And then it just, then I thought this is going to be really pretty. Cause you know, my nickname was yeah. Preta. I was Preta growing up. 
And then my grandma saying, Andale Prieta, it's like we're both in the title. Yeah. And then so we're both on the cover. Um, so I really love that. Yeah. And um, I I realize that Prieta is not, it's a complicated term, right? I was lucky that for me, it was a term of endearment. Um, since the book has come out, I've had a lot of people reach out to me, mm-hmm. um, either Instagram or social media and sharing. Like for them, Prieta was not a term of endearment. In fact, it was something that they hated and resented. But then when they they told me, like, when I see it on the cover, it makes me feel different about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes me think differently about my prietaness, right? Make, yeah. Making up a word there. But um, it is complicated uh, because, you know, there's these impossible, one, there's impossible beauty standards across the board for everyone. But then there's also these very, the white gaze of beauty standards. And mm-hmm. um, unfortunately, the Latino community has internalized that. And they they believe like the lighter you are, the better it is. Um, so for me to have a grandma that was celebrating the, my skin tone um, was a big deal. And so it wasn't until I was like out with kids, you know, and they would, they like, they made fun of me for being morenita. And I'm like, wait, what? That's bad? I didn't get it. Because, you know, she never told me, don't stay out of the sun. You know, you hear right. those things. She was like, go play. Go have fun. Um, she loved showing off my hair because I used to have really long, dark black hair. And she, like, loved my hair. And she loved people to notice my hair. Um, so this is my grandma inadvertently. You know, I don't know if she did this. I can't ask her. But she's celebrating my she my was. indigenous features. And, um, you know... It was really nice. And I didn't realize it, I was much older when I thought about my sister and how we did not match. And then when we were in Dallas, it was it was a lot easier for her because she, you know, she was white passing for the most part. Sometimes people would ask her like, oh, where are you from? But it was not the kind of where are you from I would get. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, my own experiences with my Latinidad, it's complicated mostly from the outsider view because my insider yeah. view was was really supportive and so I wanted to highlight that um and the messages I've gotten have just been really beautiful um and I hadn't thought about that because I was so focused that it was like my Ita and I on the cover that I hadn't yeah. thought about other prietas like me and how they would experience the title and how they would look at it um, but all the messages I've gotten have been like, I feel very seen. You're reclaiming so, it. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yes. And, and so you know, great. I grew up in SoCal, so I never really uh, felt it till I lived in Houston. And then I just faced so much shit from being told, you don't, you can't come into the bar at a, in court. You're the paralegal. I had worked on the case for, you know, months with a opposing counsel who was an old white dude from Houston in a seersucker suit. And I was like shocked, like, oh my gosh, you know, and my black friends getting the police called on them their first day at work. I was just shocked at the racism and the rampant color privilege that exists in parts of Texas. It's not every part of Texas, because I don't know if San Antonio is like that. And so, um, but it's interesting. It's interesting. To this day, my younger sister, Annie, asserts she wasn't favored. And I don't know whether it was because of her skin or because she reminded my mom of her grandma because she was like the same disposition. So you never know what, because even those of us with, you know, we internalize this and we reassert these color privileges. And I was very, they used to call us the brown berries when we were little because we did tan a lot with baby oil. So I was always dark as a young girl and I loved it. And I never really felt that color issue either until I got older, right? And so mm. it's interesting and, oh, straighten your hair. Do, and now I wear my hair curly. I'd straightened it for years. And I was like, why do I have to feel like I have to straighten my hair? I mean, I like it straight too. I do sometimes still do straighten it, but I also feel like I can wear it curly and be like, you know, a big old mane. Um, I love that you have this whole chapter dedicated to your cat, Drew Barrymore. Yeah. Rest in peace, Drew. Um, and then you become a dog person. You have chihuahuas now? Yes. Yeah. I How many? Oh God, I, I have, <laughs> <laughs> I have four total, but they're not all chihuahuas. I have a weenie dog, one is oh. like a mutt mutt, and then I have two chihuahua rescues. Oh, so, you know, we talked in the green room about cats and how they, I think you said, and I love this, they get a bad rap, but like my cat got me through everything. I, you put a whole chapter about Drew B. I, I loved did. it. <laughs> yeah, it was beautiful. 
she was really important to me. Um, and I felt like, like her, her leaving me was like a, an end for like a, an end of a chapter that I didn't know was ending. Um, but yeah, I mean, she was, since I was 13 years old, she went everywhere with me. Um, so yeah. She looked to be like 19 or something. She's like, uh, I think she was like 20 or 21. (laughs) That's an old cat. (laughs) The vet even told me like in human years, she was over a hundred. Um, so yeah, she was really old at the end. She was really crabby. Um, but you know, she was such a big part of my life. And I didn't even know that because when I moved, when I moved, I was like asking my mom, should I leave my cat with you? And she's like, no, you take your cat with you. (laughs) She's like, I still got that. Take her. And so, um, so there I go with Drew meowing 12 hours in a car driving to Dallas. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And yeah, she moved around with me. She, all the places I lived in Dallas, she moved. When I got home, she moved back with me. Um, And so she was a huge like staple, like she was my companion so um she's family I mean I do believe this I just lost a dog and it was not as hard as losing my father but it was very hard uh you know I went through a deep depression and my other dog is grieving and you don't get over it easily but you know I think they the dogs and cats can be like our family I mean we're with them more than we're with a lot of people you know yes for sure (laughs) and I think they teach us stuff Oh, for I mean, sure. she taught me so much. Um, so yeah, she deserved a chapter because she was <laughs> she was like an end cap of, of something. <laughs> um, so so we have about five ten more minutes. What advice do you have? This is your first debut um, memoir novel um, memoir. Um, what advice do you have for writers about publishing, about finding your voice, and believing that it has value? And not sabotaging yourself with that thing we call imposter syndrome, which we all deal with. And I try not to even say it anymore because I don't even want to bring it back into my life because I've really tried to move forward from that. But what advice do you have for writers, especially Latinas and Latinos who are writing um, about being authentic, right? Because this, I'll tell you this, I've had so many people on and everyone has a story to tell, but this is so authentic. I mean, it's almost like I you get to know you so well in it, and it's just so reflective and open and honest. But that's the beauty, right? And you, it's not like um, I wouldn't even say that you go with this flowery language. Your writing is beautiful and it's eloquent and it's elevated, but it's also simple in the sense that you know it, you convey these very deep thoughts in a way that's just so lyrical and beautiful. So, um, what what? advice you have for people um so I have a couple things um and I said this earlier when I was writing the book I didn't think about my audience I didn't think about my family and so now I really think like when you're writing I don't in order to honor the story and allow the story to take you where it needs to go and where it wants to go you cannot think about your audience um, you can't think like oh if my mom reads this what is she gonna say like just mm-hmm. just write it and then in the editing process, you can kind of think about that a little bit. Um, so that's the first thing. The other thing is I, I think we undervalue our stories a lot. Um, and when I say we, I, I just mean like this, our community, because we're like, well, I didn't do these exciting things. I didn't, you know, I didn't grow up in this magical place. And and when we look at the stories that are represented on the shelves, they seem so distant from us. Yeah. But once you find the magic in your story, then you're like, wait, this is, this is really unique. Like one of the first stories that I wrote was my grandma teaching me how to fight. And, <laughs> I love that that story. I, and like, I would tell that story to people all the time orally. And they would be like, no way. Your grandma taught you how to box. Like, so you know how to box? And I'm like, yes. And then later as an adult, I box like not professionally, like for health, but I mean, it, it was a pretty strenuous boxing regimen. And so um, that story was magical. And I would tell it all the time. And it wasn't until I'm like, wait, what I could write this story that I really realized that it just had all this shine to it and all this, this lesson. And so I think sometimes we just undervalue our stories because they seem very ordinary because we live them, but not just because we live them doesn't mean they're ordinary. 
Um, no, exactly. Like I'm going to take this little soundbite and play it because I think it's really important. Memoir is magic. I think writing is channeling for me. I'm sure for you too. It's about re- reaching that place in yourself. I mean, I do the research after. I never do the research before I write a memoir piece. I let the story flow and then I'll go back in and I double check all the TV shows and music. I, and one of my stories I put, I think the queen is dead, but it wasn't out yet. So I had to change it to meet his murder by the Smiths for the album I was referencing. So it's stuff like that. But I mm-hmm. think that if people go with what you're saying, like memoir is magic. This isn't, if you find that one story, like your grandmother teaching you how to box, that's like, really, if you think about it, teaching you to be a fighter, it's like the core of this book, you're a fighter. That's how you make, mm-hmm. I think I had a story that I, a question I didn't get to ask you about resilience, but that's the majority of this book for me was showing how you um, became resilient, right? It's your resilience, yes. and it's yes. from the matriarchs in your family, not the patriarchs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what are they? Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that it, it's a huge metaphor for sure. Um, yeah. Th- that one one story is is really the backbone. And, and yeah, because writing it, there was all these bumps and hiccups, and I don't think I want to, and no, this hurts too much. And mm-hmm. But it was like, okay, no, you're going to sit down you're going to put your gloves on and you're going to go back into uh. the ring kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I, so that I think I would say that and then publishing wise, you know, I, I just got really lucky, I think. And, and this is one of those other moments where I think my Etha was navigating mm. or guiding me along the way because I pitched the book to two university presses and they gave me the nicest nose I've ever heard uh, when I shared with some other writers friends and they gave me like these long page of notes on what to do. Um, and then, you know, when I was struggling, I was like, this is okay. This is my life. So I know the story. So I don't know what's missing. So I decided to work with a freelance editor. Um, and I know not everybody has this privilege, but I but think that's great. Can- yeah. You can find someone who maybe is looking for experience or there's ways that you can navigate that. And that person. There's all price ranges for freelance editors. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, And this person happened to freelance for Cinco Puntos. And so that's how I, that's how my manuscript got to leave. (laughs) And I didn't know this at all, at all. I was just like, I got goosebumps. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's, there's something really beautiful. It was like a a day after my grandma's birthday when Lee sent me the contract. Wow. And so there's all these little things that have happened along the way that I'm like, okay, yeah, she was like, definitely guiding me. And so, um, you know, I think right from the heart, use someone else's eyes to edit. And then just do your research on where you want your book to go. Like, what are they doing for other authors? Like, if there's an author that you love, look them up and see who their publisher is and look and see um, what they're doing for this author. And and that is a, that's a wonderful guide, I think. Wonderful advice. Well, thank you so much. Again, please go get her book. I'm going to put, um, I'm going to share it. Ah, twinsies. I'm going to share it on my uh, Facebook page and on Life of Gem and on my Instagram. Um, what's next on your horizon really quick? Where can people find you? Any upcoming events you want to pitch really quick before we go? Um, I do. I don't have any upcoming events just yet. I had a really busy last couple of weeks. And so, um, but they can find me on my website, yasminramirez.com. All my socials are linked there. My handle is what is showing on the screen right now for most platforms. Um, but I'm I'm really active on like Instagram. That's my favorite one. So um, if they want to know what I'm doing, what I'm up to, um, they can look there. Um, and yeah, they, they can reach me through there. And, and I have all the stuff about the book. All links to my stuff is all on my website too. Yeah, and you have a great video on your um, webpage. I love it. Um, so thank you so much. This was wonderful. Um, just uh, everyone should know that my next episode is Dr. Mary Hill Wagner. She's uh, from Montclair or she lives in Montclair now. Um, she's from LA. She's author of the memoir Girls in the Hood. Um, she's going to be on November 9th, Wednesday, 7 p.m. Pacific. Again, Yasmin, I mean, such an honor. Such thank an you. honor. Thank you so much for having me. I had so much fun. Oh, good. Yeah. And I'm going to post this. I'll boost it. And 
we'll get a bunch of people to watch. So I, I hope everyone goes out to get your book. Everyone buy this book, give it as a gift for Christmas to your tias, to your sisters. Say, hey, read this book. It's amazing. I'm going to get it from my friend Bridget, who's from El Paso, who's a judge now, and she's just going to love it, I know. Awesome. Okay. Thank you. Oh, I just wanted to give a quick shout out. Um, I'm wearing my Patty Smith shirt from my dear friend, Brian Bowles, who passed away this weekend. He is a punk rock public defender, saw the Sex Pistols live, and uh, this is episodes dedicated to Brian Bowles. Have a great night. Bye, everyone. Bye.